Stuart Lee. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for coming. So you're like a couple of weeks into this six-week run you're doing yeah. at the Leicester Square Theatre. How's it going? Well, it's been, it's been great, yeah. I mean, um, it's strange. I, I, when I sort of travel around the country and try and get gig, gig, gigs around the country, like in Oxford, the sort of big theatres are always going, oh, sorry, I haven't heard of you. So I end up doing the sort of 300-seater venue four times. And here in London, I'm basically doing an O2's worth of people or four Hammersmith Apollos in much more manageable sort of 350-seater chunks, you know, where people get a much better show, really, because it's always... Comedy's always better in a smaller space. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Have you ever been tempted to try and do something like an O2? Or no, I never, I never thought I'd be able to. But then I looked at the figures for this and I thought, well, that's really interesting, I could try and do that. But then you have to spend so much money on advertising. To kind of, it's a whole different ball game, you know. And like my age, I'm just sort of thinking, can I hang in here long enough to kind of get through to retirement age without going bankrupt? <laughs> But then wouldn't the advantage of doing those shows be that you could just do a couple instead of doing a six-week stretch? Yeah, two, maybe. You know? I mean, I think I think partly why people do those kind of shows with comics is they sort of get lent on to do them by their management because it's a profile-raising exercise and that helps their management, who probably also own a production company, get a commission for that production company to make them a television programme, you know, because actually the overheads on them are really massive. Like you have to take all your own kit in and hire all your own people, whereas at Leicester Square Theatre, just have I have nothing. So it's really easy, you know. I have four cans of Guinness in a fridge. I don't even drink them normally. That's the extent of my of my overheads. But presumably, it's a nicer gig as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, I th- also I kind of think with what I do, it's so quiet and sort of low key. You know, I'm not about to have a huge cannon on stage and set it off or do a big dance number. And 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 if people can see. Also, the kind of stuff I do, like you kind of leave it up to the audience to decide what they think of it. It's not acted out. or So they need to be able to see the tiniest nuances in your face, really, and things like that. And I know you can put people on a big screen and whatever, but then I feel like it's like 16,000 people going to a stadium to watch television, you know. So it is really nice doing these little gigs. But, God, you know, I mean, it's been... I've been working every night for about four months now, and it sort of goes on till... Um, till March. Because, yeah, you've been touring all through yeah. all through the autumn and you're yeah. continuing to through the spring. I thought the last time you did a massive big tour, I thought you were like, you know, never again, I'm not going to do that. I know, big. well, I did. Yeah, <laughs> well, I really like it. You know, I mean, I, like, I really like writing the shows. I like the, the freedom you get. And it was, it was a real, it was a really good break to be offered the BBC series uh, four years ago that I finally made this year. Um, and, uh, you know, it helped me to get bigger crowds and whatever, but and I really enjoyed doing it, and the people that worked on it were great. But it is really brilliant that with stand-up, you can sort of think of an idea and work it out, and there's no, there aren't layers and layers of interfaces between you and, and the audience. You don't have to go through layers of approval or rewrites or whatever. And actually, as we live in increasingly bland and censorious times, it's a really great opportunity to be able to do that, I think. You've had a bit of an on-off relationship with stand-up in that you've gone through periods of not doing it. I mean, first... basically about every eight years, I come back into fashion and there's usually someone in head of television who wants to do something with me at that point. I'm just about to go out of fashion again. I don't think that the new um, 
controller of BBC Two is going to recommission the series. Really? Yeah, I don't think so. It just doesn't seem to be any discernible enthusiasm for it, even though everyone else there is keen on it, and even though it got like the best reviews anything's had for a decade. And amazing just, ratings uh, as well. It wasn't. Well, just... it was good by the end. It got up to about one and a quarter million by the end. You know, it built. It built. Most things tail off, which meant that people must have been saying to their friends, "Oh, you should watch this." You know, but so I think I'm probably about to go drift out of uh, what little public consciousness I had. But it's okay. I mean, I, as long as I stay alive, about every seven and a half years, I get another little. It'll I come back. It'll come back. When... But then people assume you didn't want to do it. They go, "What? Oh, yeah, you don't ever do telly. No sellout." I go, well, I wasn't, I've never been offered the opportunity. <laughs> like, if we, but that's you know, good. If you've that's done the, it, if someone had said, If you know. that's what people think, then yeah, you're just, you know, right. keeping yeah. it real. So what was the first comedy thing? Like, do you remember, like, when you first kind of fell in love with comedy? Um, yeah, well, I always liked stuff. I always liked comedy as a kid. And I, used, I was a kind of kid in the 70s that used to watch Spike Milligan and Monty Python on television. And I remember my mum taking me to see the two Ronnies, actually, live in about 1976 in Coventry. And falling off my seat at about the age of eight, laughing during um, a Ronnie Barker monologue about um, a little brown Richard III. It was some kind of thing where he was doing Cockney rhyming slang about the weather or something. But the moment at which I wanted to be a stand-up was... Um, I'd always thought I'd just write comedy or whatever, but it was in 1984 when, in the kind of immediate post-punk era, this kind of this alternative comedy thing was happening in London. But in the provinces, you didn't really see it. But what you did see was... Um, comics opening for bands um, and I saw uh, Phil Jupitus when he was a teenager called Porky the Poet opening for Billy Bragg in about 1982 and I saw Peter Richardson from the comic strip opening for Dexy's Midnight Runners in about the same year and then in 1984 I saw this guy called Ted Chippington opening for The Fall and it was absolutely a real road to Damascus moment to me because he, he didn't I, I thought to be a comedian you had to be like a big personality and uh run around and really sell it. And um, Ted Chippington was the absolute opposite of that. You know, he didn't really do anything or really say very much. And he didn't seem like he wanted to be on stage either. And everyone in the room was irritated by it. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> and that was, that was the moment in which I realised that it was for me. And, I'm, you know, I think without that bit of luck of seeing him that night, I would have had a completely different life. Probably a better life, actually. <laughs> So when was your first gig? When did you first try it out? Well, I did. I remember I used to do sort of little shows and things at school. I remember in about night, probably about the same time at school, doing some kind of show where I would write little sketches and stuff, and I'd do some things on my own. Then I did stuff in the Edinburgh Fringe when I was a student. Again, it was really different then in the eighties. You know, the Edinburgh Fringe is still brilliant, but back then all the posters were just photocopied bits of paper and. You know, in the 80s, if you're a student, you're on a grant, you could probably get housing benefit if you went up there. You could sleep on the floor somewhere. I mean, there was, it was a really sort of cheap thing to do. And, and the distance between you and the, and the names, the big names, was nothing. You know, and I, and I remember seeing a bill in Edinburgh in 87 that was um, Jerry Sadovitz, Arnold Brown, Arthur Smith and Norman Lovett, and that was another thing that really... Basically, all, all the first recordings I've got of me doing stand-up in sort of 88, 89, I'm just copying them and Ted Chippington. Exactly. To oh, the point you? where it's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just naff, you know. I think I'm going to put them out though. Actually, you should do. Yeah, because I feel confident enough about it now. And there's a, there's such a lot. There's all this kind of fuss at the moment about people ripping each other off and people being copied. And I kind of think, you know, for the first two or three years, you do sound like, um, you do inevitably sound like the people that made an impression on you when you were a teenager. You know. 
But I suppose it's like people in bands when they well, first yeah. start playing, they just copy other. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and then you realise, don't you? I remember, like my age, you know, when I was a teenager, I really liked Echo and the Bunny Man, and I still think they're really good. But then I remember getting to about twenty and hearing television and the Thirteenth Floor Elevators and the Velvet Underground, and going, "Oh right, I see. It's just copied off them." <laughs> and what's weird now, I think, is being being forty-one and seeing young people get excited about loads of bands that sound like an era that I never thought would get. Um, co-opted that kind of immediate post-punk funky kind of thin bristol you know uh sound that you hear in loads of like skinny little groups now seems really just never thought that would come around again weird but how did your gigs go down at the beginning well you know they probably went about as well as they do now you know i mean still if i'm playing the wrong crowd now i still just can go to absolute silence and uh, then other times it's sort of a kind of hysteria is created in the room where everyone seems to be on the verge of wetting their pants. and um, but So that doesn't sound arrogant. You know, I can say to you that in August in Edinburgh, I was doing my own run and it was going really well every night. And then I got given two gigs through the Edinburgh Fringe Society in a big room to perform to sponsors of the Edinburgh Fringe who were all having dinner, where I, I went to just nothing and actually was told afterwards um, that it created quite a... A, a bad vibe in the room afterwards where people were arguing with each other about if what they'd seen could even constitute comedy in Seriously? any way. Yeah, yeah. so it's sort of... Um, but, you know, like when you saw me the other night at that uh, benefit at the Bloomsbury... This is the Robin and yeah, Scott yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, and I'm basically doing, you know, one joke for about 15 minutes and people... And a gig like that, everyone's up for it and they buy into it. They find it increasingly absurd. And, it, and by the end, it's mad, you know. But if you didn't buy into it, there's nothing. <laughs> and there isn't going to be something else coming along in a bit, you know. I mean, So what, were they expecting, like, a man walked into a... Yeah, prob- probably. Or they were expecting something that just seemed more like comedy, you know. And I can see... It's funny, having made the... T- I never used to quite understand the degree of hostility towards me I sometimes find when you do that thing you must never do of looking up your own name on Google. But um, having edited the television series, I can really see why people would be irritated by it. <laughs> yeah, but then that's really... sort of. I mean, I, I like that, you know. Yeah. But I can see why people would hate it, and uh, I can see why people would say t- about me, "Oh, it's great," you know. He incrementally builds these ideas, and they're so carefully controlled, and it's really blah blah. I can see why people would say that, and I can also see why people would say it's boring, monotonous, smug, conceited. There don't seem to be any jokes in it. What's the point of it? I can also see that, and I quite like that in a way. And but I mean, the the fun thing about this tour, one of the nice things about it has been that um, most of the people coming know what they're coming to, right? And they want to see you do it even more, right? Whereas the last time I toured, there'd still be people coming out on a Friday night in a provincial town wanting to see some of that stand-up comedy, and about ten fifteen percent of those audiences would be would be unhappy. And I and I didn't like disappointing them or taking their money under false pretenses when there are loads of people they could go and see that they'd really love. So it's it's nice in a way that the audience is homogenised, but then you do miss, perversely, you do miss the element of struggle and the risk of defeat and the possibility of failure, you know, because that's what makes it exciting. So the only way you can hang on to that is to write material that's so difficult and <laughs> it might still not work, even in front of an audience that really like you. But that's great that you've got that reaction, but do you ever get people coming along because they're like, oh, he was on telly, so that'll be good? Yeah, I think so. And a couple of times I've found that. But um, what I haven't had happen is I found, weirdly, I don't really like being in an audience where everyone's on the same wavelength. 
it seems a bit like a rally to me. You know, I find it a bit strange going to see people I know that have done really well, where everyone's really into it. It makes me feel like I want to sabotage it in some way. It's a really strange feeling. So I like to I like to almost build in the fact that you know safety valves that mean that won't happen. That there's always going to be somebody going, "What the hell is this supposed to be?" You know. Although yesterday after the Sunday afternoon performance last week, maybe it was just a bit early in the day. There was about that's what, the last routine in the current show is about half an hour long. It's all based around one phrase from a cider advert, and uh, it's about ten minutes normally before it's clear to anyone that it might even be funny at all. But normally about ten minutes in, it starts to tip. And last Sunday, it was about a quarter of an hour before anyone had really, <laughs> really got into it. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be the first time I've been waiting for it. This is going to be the first time where the show has no sort of end and just trickles out. But it was, but it did tip. And the tipping point's always the fun bit, you know, at which point does that happen? But I love the feeling of, like, people not knowing where something is going. And I also like the feeling of it being obvious to them where it's going, but they can't believe how long you're taking to get there. <laughs> The TV show is, the one we're talking about is Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle, yeah. which has been on BBC Two. Actually, I want to talk about it more in a bit, but right. I want to talk about the first TV thing that I knew from, well, actually the first TV thing that you did, which was Fist of Fun. Fist of Fun, yeah, with Rich Herring. Which yeah. came about, you'd been doing writing for Radio 4. Yeah, we wrote for a lot for Radio 4, and we did a series for Radio 1 called Fist of Fun. Yeah, Lee and, and And what's amazing to think now that broadcasting's become so sort of niche, you know, is that... In the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of spoken word on Radio 1, you know, a lot, and a lot of specialist programming. So there was a lot... We used to do hour-long shows on there, and the telly show sort of came off the back of that. And funny enough, at the time, in the mid-90s, when there was Reeves and Mortimer on telly and The Far Show and Father Ted and Big Train and Chris Morris and whatever, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, you know, we're on telly, it's amazing. But it's sort of not beyond human comprehension that we'd be on telly because all, pe- all the things I liked were on telly. And I didn't really realise how amazing it was to have got on telly um, at all. Whereas now, I find being on television now, I find it absolutely mind-blowing. I can't believe... Because I don't really like anything that's on television. So I can't really understand why I'm on television at all. <laughs> whereas, um, whereas 15 years ago, it seemed like quite a good fit, you know. Um, but again, it was different then. It was sort of... It was before... Now, if you do a telly series now and it got the kind of viewing figures we used to, You'd do like a stadium tour and you'd have a DVD in the shops. and But it was sort of before anyone had really worked out how to do that. You know, it was before comedy became the big business it is. I mean, that show's not even out on... It was never out on video or DVD and we didn't really tour properly and we never really made anything on it. We had Richard Herring on this podcast a few weeks ago and I was saying how it was, it felt to me watching it like a huge deal. You know, we did, I was at school and we'd come to school and be like, oh my God, did you see it last night? What about this bit? What about that bit? And he was saying that it didn't really feel such a big deal to you guys when you were in the midst of it. Yeah, well, we we lost money on the tours because I think people thought that all going to be like Newman and Badil at Wembley, which had just happened. So the overheads on the tours were unrecoupable normally. BBC didn't recommission it. And also back then, there wasn't even anybody really even writing about comedy. 20 years ago, a live review of comedy sort of went, I went to a room, a man came out, the people laughed, it was good, you know. It's only in about the last 10 years that journalists have even bothered to really sort of think about what might actually be going on. And you do start to get broadsheet journalists now that review comedy. So there wasn't really anybody writing about it. It just went off in a kind of... uh, in a kind of bubble, and we sort of came out of it with nothing, and it didn't get really re- repeated or 
released commercially. But then what is really strange is 15 years later, you suddenly got quite a big... We both suddenly got quite big audiences. And um, a lot of people in them coming and saying, I used to listen to you on the radio when I was 15, and here I am now, 32, you know, and they're the audience. And so sometimes, so are their kids, you know, which is or, or their parents as well, since doing the telly, you know. So this is really weird spread. It's almost like we didn't realise it, and we kind of came out of the whole thing in the mid-90s with nothing to show for it. But a decade later... It's like you sowed the seeds. An audience, yeah. You kind of, <laughs> it took a decade of them in a greenhouse somewhere before they, before they grew into an audience. So I've been very lucky, actually. So you, were, you had two series of Fists of Fun mm. on uh, BBC Two and then two series of This Morning with Richard, Not Duty. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you were kind of doing stand-up the whole time as well, weren't Me, you? Me, yeah. I've done stand-up since 1988, yeah. I mean, that was, again, Fists of Fun got cancelled because the new controller didn't like it and then another controller took over and wanted us to do something. We couldn't do that again, so we did this kind of live, semi-improvised show on Sunday mornings called This Morning with Richard, Not Judy, which, again, if you look at it on YouTube or something, it's unbelievable that it was broadcast. I mean, it's sort of... There isn't swearing in it or sexual content, but it just seems like really... It seems like some mad people have just been allowed to do something. And when it, it's partly because no one was interested in it. You know, it was in this little slot and it was kind of overlooked. We just sort of left to get on with it. And I, I'm always pleasantly surprised when I remember what was in it or see stuff that was in it. You know, I can't quite believe it was... Um, it was ever going out. And in a way, you know, Rich is often upset, Rich Herring, and that our stuff hasn't been put out on DVD, and he feels like, you know, the shows weren't given the recognition, particularly when you meet generations of new comics saying they really like them. But on the other hand, you know, at least it wasn't frogged to death, and it's this sort of thing people can come across and find for themselves, and everything's out there now anyway on in the internet world. You know, it's quite nice, really. He was also saying that, in retrospect the amount of famous that you could have got probably wouldn't have suited either of you that well. No, it absolutely wouldn't have sort of suited me, no. And, and um, I think it would have, it might have suited Richard Herring, but he would have gone insane and he would have exploited everything offered to him and he would become, he would have become a hundred stone sexaholic if he'd been famous. But um, I find it embarrassing being recognised, you know. And luckily, luckily the, doing the last series made, it hasn't made any real difference to my daily interaction with people or things you know I'm able not? To, not really i'm able to kind of i'm not on the things where you get recognized from like panel games and stuff like that and um and i've lived in the same place 10 15 years and so what happens is i go in the shop now and the bloke goes oh well, i didn't know you were a comedian i go yeah and he goes oh and it's so it's not a big deal at all it's absolutely fine right it's no trouble whatsoever but the other problem is that to be better known nowadays you have to sort of engage with the whole mechanism of going on Jonathan Ross or doing an interview for Heat magazine or being in an advert or something. And I kind of think with the sort of comedy I do and, and that Rich does as well, that we were from an era where the comedians were supposed to be outsiders, like sort of idiots looking in and not understanding everything and making fun of it. And somehow in the last 20 years... The comedian is now a sort of celebrity in their own right, like a Russell Brand figure, who at the same time as being a comedian is sort of the kind of person that comedy used to make fun of. This isn't a criticism of him at all, but he's just, he is a big celebrity in a way that comedians never were. Or or they're the sort of people that might be in gossip columns or go out with models or or um, do modelling or, or be glamorous and, and also be the kind of things that comedy used to make fun of, you know, people that front things or do corporate gigs or whatever and I think I don't really think I could do the material that I do if I was any nearer to the um to the center of power you know I mean I got nominated for a 
best live stand-up in the British Comedy Awards. As it happened, I couldn't go because I was, I was being a stand-up that night. But um, I watched it on telly and I thought, God, I, I just wouldn't have known what to do. Like half the people in the room are people I've done material, taking, making fun of them, saying they should be killed and stuff like that. <laughs> like the whole thing's like clearly a transparent kind of marketing exercise by various production companies. So it was, you know, it would have been great to win it. Uh, it would have really helped me sell some tickets. But to be honest, it would also have been just totally bizarre being there. Like that old Groucho Marx thing, you know, he, where he said he wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have him as a member. That's a bit how I feel about I feel like about all that stuff. You've done a couple of panel shows there, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I did. I did three in. Uh, 2006 basically in 2005 I went for a meeting with the head of BBC Two and I left it having been given my own series no pilot necessary which is pretty amazing that doesn't normally happen and then in 2006 they sort of got cold feet and withdrew the offer I don't know what happened and no one will ever tell me so I hadn't really set up any work for that year because I thought I was going to be filming a TV show what was the TV show going to be Stuart Lee's comedy video oh, yeah, then, then 18 months later it came back on the right. slate I don't know why so I thought, well, I have to, you know, I kept getting off of these panel games, and I did them. But it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. I mean, it makes stars of people. You know, you can do huge venues if you do those panel games, but I haven't got that kind of material. And also, if I'm setting something up, I'm normally going to say something afterwards that will defeat the expectation I've created. Whereas on a panel show, how they work is that everyone rolls in the same direction. So the setup that you're making is often taken away from you and used to make some kind of point that you wouldn't even have wanted to say. So it's quite bizarre. Also, a lot of the stuff I do, the laugh isn't immediate. It happens in the pause, maybe three, four seconds later. And um, on a panel game, that pause is filled up by Jason Manford shouting. So you can't even get, like, the laugh in that bit. I remember Buzzcox was all right. Have I got news for you? Everyone was very kind on that. But on... Eight out of ten cats, within about 30 seconds of it starting, I thought, there's absolutely nothing I can do with this. And it was like going into exam when you're a teenager and you just realise you don't know any of the questions. you just got to sit there until you're allowed to leave. <laughs> and, like, I could see Jimmy Carr, who I know of it, you know, looking at me and trying to sort of help me. And I just thought, oh, God. And but the interesting thing about that was it was a moment where I realised, you know, if I am going to try and do better... The, the normal channels for people aren't going to work for me. I just can't do this. <laughs> so that's interesting and useful then. That you yeah, it was interesting it. and useful, yeah. It was like, uh, I think it was the worst experience I've ever had professionally, being on 8 out of 10 cats, which is no disrespect to the people on it. And also I think it's an amazing skill, particularly for someone like Sean Locke, who is a fantastic live stand-up. And he wrote a brilliant couple of series for BBC Two about living in a tower block. But he manages to find a way of doing what's required in those programmes and not disgracing himself. And I think it is an incredible skill, but it's just not something I'm capable of doing. You've done, over the years, you've done quite a lot of directing as well. Yeah. Uh, you directed one of the first Mighty Boosh shows in I directed Edinburgh. their second live show in 1999, yeah, which sort of, sort of became, sort of became a template for what they did afterwards, really, which was... I tried to get them to impose some kind of narrative over the free-forming, surreal stuff they did. And that was an amazing experience. I always used to say that uh, trying to direct The Mighty Boosh was like trying to direct smoke. But then when I did Jerry Springer, The Opera in the West End, there was a lot of smoke in it. And actually, smoke is easier to direct than The Mighty Boosh. It's more likely to follow 
a, uh, a logical trajectory than they are. But they were very kind to me, and they really uh, they taught me a lot. You know, they taught, you, you, you learn a lot in the strangest places. Like, I wouldn't have thought I would learn a lot of them, but I learned a lot about sort of bravery and, and freedom and not worrying too much about stuff. And the time they would spend, they'd spend a whole morning trying to find the right adjective for something, you know, for one one word in a sentence and it annoys me when people go oh it's just they're just going about fish and dogs and stuff and otters because it's like it's really really good like, it's really hard to do that kind of thing really well it's really hard and they and the fact that they make it look easy is why there's loads of idiots on the internet saying that they're just mucking about you know because it's it's really good so i did them i did um well i did uh, jerry spring of the opera which sort of happened by accident really i was writing it with this composer richard thomas writing the words and we didn't have any money and there wasn't anyone around and I started blocking out rehearsals and saying to people, you stand over there and the next thing I knew I was directing it at the National Theatre. But that's actually what directing is, I realised. Just telling people. You just say, face here, speak up and make this kind of face. That's all it is. <laughs> when you started doing Jerry Springer, what did you think it was going to be? Because you started off doing it at the... Bastille. Well, it was Richard Thomas, the composer's idea, and he said that he... Um, was in one night watching telly drunk and he saw Jerry Springer and there was a load of fat people all shouting at each other and you couldn't understand what they were saying and that's the same as an opera. I don't know what we thought it would be. It, it, it kind of just kept building. We kept doing it again and again with more people and then ended up at the National Theatre. If what you mean by that is did you realise it would be the most complained about thing ever, leads to legal cases and you'd never make any money out of five years of working on it and the police would advise people associated with it to go into hiding then no, I didn't realise that. that was but a... no one could have done. I mean, you know. The complaints came when it was aired on BBC Two. Yeah, yeah. And it had 65,000, the most. Yeah. It's still the number had. one complained about thing. <laughs> but along the way, it won four Olivier Awards. Yeah. It won Critics' Choice Awards. It won all sorts of things, yeah. I mean, and also what's worth remembering is it got good reviews in uh, the Catholic Herald, the Church Times and the Jewish Chronicle when it was a theatre piece. And... Um, what you can kind of see in retrospect, it's hard to see through the mist of, at the time, is that, you know, it came along at a point where people on the right in politics and religion were in a tiz about what they saw as special treatment for minority groups because this um, play Bestie had been pulled off in Birmingham after complaints by Sikhs. And they were looking for a sort of political football or, or a Trojan horse to fill up with all their anxieties and... Um, this came along at, the, at just the right time, and most of what was said about it was people in, afraid of something else, using it as a way of getting that into the news, you know. But at the time, you know, it wasn't really... No-one really worked that out. And, and I mean, the, the coverage of it was bad as well, because as soon as this one particular group started complaining about it, I looked them up on the internet and saw that they were saying that homosexuality was a punishment, for AIDS was a punishment from God and you know, gays were going to hell and whatever, and I just thought, well, no-one's going to take them seriously. <laughs> but then Next you, thing you know. <laughs> didn't you do, when you were touring it around the country, didn't you go and do debates and things with people? Well, I was encouraged to do that, to do, like, debates with local protesters. And and the, the suggestion was that this would diffuse local tensions because I was able to... I would be able to explain it coherently. But it didn't, because you can't really argue with people that are fundamentalists, you know, you can't really do anything about it. Also, I suspect, in retrospect, that perhaps the PR people or the theatres thought it would be good to, for tickets if there was a complaint. This is another thing, looking back on it, I wonder 
whether what we were being told was really true, you know. And when the final court case for Jerry Springer was on, and it was a battle between um, Christian Voice, who this right-wing Christian group, who was suing what ended up being the producers of the show for blasphemy. Can they you took, sue for blasphemy? Well, it was the last time it was scrapped after that, yeah. And um, partly because of that case, I think. But they took us off the lawsuit, so it's just Christian Voice and the producers. And I thought, that's really funny. It's kind of like two sets of people, neither of whom really developed the show, who perhaps had both been fibbing a bit, who ended up fighting each other and we weren't in the fight. But one of those Buster Keaton films where he starts a fight in a bar and all people start beating him up and then he crawls out underneath and the fight carries on. It was a bit like we just sort of left and it wasn't anything to do with us anymore, you know. Just gone. It's funny. So what would you do differently, knowing now what you know? Well, what I do, I don't think... I suspect that trying to run it as a commercial concern in the West End was wrong. And that actually certain kinds of art have a shelf life and an audience and that they don't necessarily benefit from being run at that level. Certainly, on a practical level, it wasn't cost-effective. We never saw anything out of it. Um, Whereas we might have done if it had been run with just a piano and a little smaller group of people in the way that we originally did it. I think it kind of was better in that way, in some ways as well. Also, what I've learned is, as much as it's important to get people into shows, it's really important to keep them out, right? For example, I with stand-up, I do what I do. I can't do anything else. I'd never caught controversy, but it seems to accidentally attach itself to a lot of my material, rather in the same way that when a dog, you know, urinates on the pavement, it's not trying to offend you. It may do, but it's just a byproduct of its natural process, you know. And with the stand-up shows, what I try and do is I don't go on things and publicise them to people that I think won't like them, you know. And I always put at least one quote on the poster that's really bad. Like on the current show, it says, um, his whole tone of, is one of unbearable, patronising, smug condescension, the Birmingham Sunday Mercury. And hopefully people that don't like the sound of that won't come, you know. Is that why you do I just yeah. always assumed it was a bit camp and funny. No, and... I just think it's sort of like, you want to go to them, look, you might not like this, right? So if you're in two minds about it, just don't come. Let's just have a really good time with all the people that are coming. The other thing is, if you keep all your overheads down, if 5,000 people like you and they give you £10 each a year, it's a really good living. So there's sort of not much point trying to make things much more popular, I think, because in my experience that just means you have to deal with loads of nutcases hassling you and not ever getting paid and having to do loads and loads of publicity in magazines that you wouldn't even wipe your ass on. So it's sort of like, actually, it's not perversity that I do, to some extent, keep a lid on what I do. It's actually, it makes long-term economic sense. Um, I want to ask you about one more thing that you did, which is, it's a really small, specific thing, but I think it sounds really interesting, that within the bits of radio you've done over the years, you did this documentary on Radio yeah. 4 about clowns. Yeah. Well, this was... I think this was the second thing in my life after seeing Ted Chippington in, in 84 where I just sort of went, oh, right, now I get it. I've been reading a lot over the years about... Um, it's, it's very difficult making it not sound pretentious, but I have been reading a lot over the years about the clowning rituals of the uh, Pueblo Indians of the Southwest in America, United States of America, in uh, Taos and the Hopi lands and New Mexico and Arizona. And... Um, I was just really fascinated by it because it seemed to tie in with lots of things that I sort of think about comedy 
And I know it sounds a bit racist and a bit patronising and a bit Western and a bit Western-centric to go, oh, look, we can go to this ancient culture and they've helpfully provided an exact metaphor for us to understand ourselves. But there's loads of stuff in the in the Native American clowning uh, rituals of the Southwest where, you know, they have these days where anything goes and all the conventions of society are overthrown. And, and I'd seen a, a, a recreation of a similar thing, a medieval French thing in France called the Bouffinards, where they used to actually let the people that were the outcasts, you know, like people who were mentally handicapped or schizophrenic or disabled, who hunchbacks and beggars were allowed to, like, run the town for a day and make fun of everything. And um, I'd always wanted to see one of these... Native American ones, but they're very difficult. They're mainly closed off to white people because they were closed down forcibly by white settlers in the 18th and 1900s. But, you know, there's this one day at Taos in New Mexico that you can go to, and it was um, it was everything I hoped it would be, and more so. The documentary's online on my website. You can still listen to it, but the, you, know, you couldn't take any recording equipment in or cameras or phones or anything. But I did a bit immediately afterwards in the car. So what sort of thing happened? Well, you know, the village is like a natural amphitheatre in the middle of all the houses are built up on platforms. And the day before is St Geronimo Day, where Day of St Jerome, where they have a big Catholic festival because obviously the Catholicism was imposed on them by the Spanish settlers. And then the next day, everyone's in the village as usual. There's a market selling nice food and whatever. And then at midday, these guys appear on the roofs of all the houses, just in loincloths, with like their hair done in a really frightening way and stripes painted all over their bodies, making these really terrifying sounds. And all the children run towards them and try and get them, and then they're scared and run off. Then they go into the village, and for the next three or four hours, they steal everyone's food, they push people in the river, they steal your children off you and your babies, and they baptise them. They baptise them in this kind of clown baptism, they went in the chief's house and all the white people are in the chief's house, the civic dignitaries from Taos itself, having dinner with the chief, and they did a sort of parody to them of what they expected a Native American dance would be. They threw all their food on the floor. They go up to old ladies and people in wheelchairs and woo them and propose to them. They get the most beautiful girl in the village and make her wear odd shoes so she can't walk. They get the lads in the village and they dress them up as women and make them fall in the river. They get white tourists and make them enact gunfights. But it's on the edge all the time of being quite frightening, like you feel you could actually be hurt or that you actually, your dignity will be unrecoverably damaged and you can't work out whether you want to watch them or hide. And it's got that just feeling of total panic. And then at the end of the day, it looks like what was the previous day's Catholic ritual is sort of like the crucifix is dismantled as well. It's sort of... It's kind of basically what you sort of feel after it is that that little microcosm of society will be in much better shape for the next 12 months as a result of this day where everything has been mocked or turned around. And they clearly have done a lot of research into who needs to be picked on or who needs their self esteem building up, actually, as well. You know, I really want in advance. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was, and I sort of thought, well, that's sort of what comedy should be, <laughs> you know. And uh, obviously no one goes into, into stand-up thinking I would like to get a job being some kind of creative pressure valve for society. People think, you know, oh, it'd be fun doing that, doing some jokes. But I think at its best, 
it's sort of something like that. And I and I like the edge of the edge of panic in that event was superb as well. So people can listen to that if they go onto your yeah website. Dark face, white face, dark heart. It's called. It was really great. I want to talk about the TV show then. So we mentioned yeah. it already. Were you, after all the Jerry Springer experience, were you nervous about doing a TV thing again? About I'm nervous about anything after that, really, because you know I'm in my forties. I've got a family, and I want to be able to keep on working. And the worst thing about Jerry Springer, the opera hassle, when all the dust had settled, really, wasn't being prosecuted for blasphemy or being misrepresented or lied about. It was just sort of, it was a long time, a lot of work to come out with a thing that you couldn't really put on anywhere or get paid for. But actually, weirdly, in February, March, it looked like the post-Saxgate climate was going to be really good for me because um, they wanted to prove that they could still do comedy at all you know, about anything. And I, I might deal with contentious issues, but there's always some kind of thought behind it and it's never gratuitous. And um, I tend not even to swear, really, which is weird for someone accused of co-writing something with 60,000 swear words in. So I think they thought, certainly a year ago, the series was seen to be perceived as a kind of answer to a problem at the time. Whereas now, I think that post-Michael McIntyre, there's, this, a lot of, there's a lot of articles about nice comedy and nasty comedy and how nice comedy's on the rise. And the Radio Times divided up this list last week of who's nice and who's nasty, and I appeared with a little symbol of a devil next to my <laughs> name. I've no idea why that is. But, I, guess... I mean, I might just be... I might be on the wrong side of whatever this arbitrary fence yeah. is. Now. Well, maybe it's, though, because you're not kind of fluffy. Yeah, you, know? you don't fit anything. But I'm not. But I never do stuff about people on the grounds of their physical appearance or disability or race or age or so I don't really I don't really know why that is there but um I was worried but actually the series only got seven complaints and they could all be dismissed out of hand two people complained that I'd made fun of Stephen Hawkins which was unfair given his handicap but I never mentioned him I mentioned uh, Richard Dawkins <laughs> and another five phoned up halfway through the show about religion and said you wouldn't do these jokes about Islam and the last 10 minutes of the show was me doing a routine about that exact phrase when people go, you wouldn't do these jokes about Islam. And there's just there's a kind of BNP viewer who just rings in and says that. Like, so actually, I think the good thing about that, the fact there's only seven complaints means that the series seems so obtuse and impenetrable that the sort of people that usually just watch things to complain couldn't even stand it enough to watch it long enough to find anything to complain about. You know. Well, clearly it wasn't completely obtuse and impenetrable because it did really well. I mean, what I loved about it is yeah. that it's it's not a panel show. It's kind of just stand-up, really, yeah. which is it feels amazing yeah. that it worked. But um, it was incredibly popular. You got, what, so one and a quarter million people? By the end, yeah. Yeah, but again, how they how they interpret those figures will... I think those, those figures will be interpreted as after a slow start it built up to that because I think they want to decommission it. So I, I don't know... Whereas, you know, if you were wanting to interpret those figures in a good way, you could go, it went from 0.8 million to 1.2, which is a 50% increase, nearly. Yeah, it is a 50% increase. If it did that again, you'd be looking at nearly 2 million. But you know what it's like, you work in broadcasting. Well, basically, a person has made a decision somewhere and the facts will be squeezed around to fit some whatever. And I, I mean, I think they, they may, may also, a new controller may have a particular vision for a channel that you don't fit, you know, and to be honest... That's their prerogative. But in the meantime, what's been really good about it is it's doubled my live audiences and I can keep going like that until I come back into fashion in about 2016 it'll be now.
Well, it's out on DVD yeah. at the moment. And so your live audiences, you're talking about this is the show that you're touring at the moment, which is yeah. called If You Prefer a Mild Comedian, Ask For One. You sing in it. I do, yeah. I was trying to do something that surprises me. I thought the, the thing I would find most embarrassing would be to try and sing a song properly on stage. So I've done that. And it worked? Yeah, it does. It works really well. <laughs> So you're doing that, that is on at the Les Square Theatre until the 17th of January and then you're touring all around the country up and until March. Back on for two months, yeah, and, then the, and I'll finish it in March. So the dates for all of that and uh, the links to the Radio 4 programme we talked about earlier yeah. and the links to, in fact, the links to, there's oh, audio and video and stuff yeah, for loads yeah. of your stuff. Um, it's all on your website, yeah. which is stuartlee.co.uk. That's it. Stuart, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having us, great. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.